So you've brought the word with you, and we're uh, going to look at this passage together, chapter 6, looking at verse 15. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And of course, we, we've been preaching through Nehemiah, and we've been talking about the, the huge responsibility and the, the giant task that Nehemiah had in bringing you know, people back to Jerusalem and, and pulling the remnant together and, and building the wall. And they're building the wall with a weapon in one hand and, of course, a cement trowel in the other. And they're, they're working and defending to get this task done. And it's interesting, as we are reading through Nehemiah, and we're going to kind of travel quickly through the rest of it, this is the last message that I'll share with you in Nehemiah for the sermon series. But it's interesting, in in all the things that's happening up to this point, that there is this turn that takes place, there is this, this new focus happens, and in this passage, I mean in this sentence... In, in regards to all the, the, the effort that's put out, it's, it's interesting that, that this is said, this is, this is, you know, made kind of as a statement. I mean, it's not a celebration. I mean, it's without fanfare. I mean, there was no trumpets that were playing. There was no great ceremony, no ribbon cutting. I mean, simply stated, he says, the wall was finished. I mean, think about that. After the huge effort that had taken place at this point, and, and then it's really not saying that much, or at least, you know, not too much. I mean, he's saying something, but not too much. And, and, and yet, you know, it's a test. It was a test of their grit and determination. It was a test of their obedience to God in regards to rebuilding the wall. But then at this point, it just abruptly stops, and he simply makes the statement, and the wall was finished. The wall was built. Now, what Nehemiah knew was that this was the first of many stages that that they were going to have to go through. And so the question that God's people were faced with is very much like the question that maybe that we should ask ourselves today, even as a church. I mean, if we are a church that is on mission or we're moving in mission, that's been the theme. That's kind of the phrase that we've been using over the last 12 months, that we are moving in mission and that we are a church on mission Maybe we should ask the same kind of question that God's people, I imagine, was asking themselves when they finished the wall. Again, a very huge undertaking. And they complete this thing. No ceremony. Just the statement. We finished the wall. Okay, it took 52 days, which, by the way, was a very short amount of time to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Of course, they divided up into families and people groups, and they all kind of went at it together, and they accomplished this thing in 52 days, and then they finished the wall, and the question I can imagine in my mind that they are asking themselves is, what next? I mean, what's next? We accomplished this big task. I mean, it's done. It's completed. Now, what next? Maybe that's the kind of question that we want to ask ourselves as a church. Again, if we're a church that's moving in mission and we look at ourselves and, OK, we're doing some things and some things we're pretty effective at. But there's some things we're not so effective in doing. So maybe we need to ask the question as a church. I mean, as Mission Church of the Nazarene, you know, what's next? Or maybe the question is for you as a family. And as a family, you're in a new chapter in life and there are new things that are beginning to happen. Or maybe the kids have moved out or maybe it's possible you just finished college. And and the question is, what's next? So maybe it's a question that we ask ourselves as an individual. You know, what's next in my life? Maybe the Lord has been stirring something up and you've been wrestling with some ideas or maybe some spiritual dynamics there. And and so maybe, you know, the question of what's next, you know, is so appropriate for you in a spiritual sense, because God is moving deeply in your life and he's moving you to a point. 
He's moving you to the brink of something. You're not sure what it is. And he's moving you to the brink of the something. And you're wondering this morning, you know, in my life, what's next? I'm wondering if you've ever stood on the edge of a chasm of darkness. I mean, a, a bottomless space of despair. I mean, the edge of the unknown. And it feels like you're standing on a, a thousand foot precipice. And there is this darkness below you, this abyss. And you do not know what the future holds. And you're standing on the edge of the something and you are feeling anxiety and you are feeling despair because you're not sure about what is next. I will never forget those early years. We we have a child that's getting ready to turn uh, 31 in September. Her name is Courtney. She'll be here at Thanksgiving. And some of you have met Courtney, but Courtney is our special needs daughter. And Courtney has many, many syndromes, many things going on in her life. And she is a great big personality and we love Courtney. She calls us almost every day. Uh, Courtney, during her younger years and third, third, her third year and fourth and fifth, sixth, seventh year, we, we didn't have a prognosis. We had no idea what was going on. Something was severely wrong. And, and I remember, you know, you know, living through that time. And I remember it was this dark valley and, and I was passing the church and my wife and I were trying to work through this. And, and, and folks, if you've ever experienced despair, you know what I'm talking about because we were despairing. I love my wife because she raised my daughter. I loved her before then as well. But I love my wife especially because she lived and raised my special needs daughter, our special needs daughter. And, and Courtney was maybe five or six and the medical doctors, the family doctors did not have the capacity to, to give us a prognosis. And we took her to children's hospitals, different people, different doctors, different specialists, and we were getting no answers at all. And then we heard about a, a, a specialist, a neurologist, actually, that was working on a grant that only would take four new patients a year. And we got word that this guy was the best I mean, if anybody could figure out what was going on, this man could figure out what was going on. Four new patients a year. And so my wife called the office. Heidi sitting back there. My wife called the office and she talked to the ladies there at this, this doctor's office, this, this specialist. And they said, I'm sorry, your daughter does not meet the profile. And he really doesn't have time. He only takes four new patients a year. And so my wife... Um, she talked and did her best trying to get them, you know, to convince them to take, you know, Courtney as her daughter so we could figure out what was happening. Well, anyways, uh, they, they didn't take her. And so my wife, she called the next Friday <laughs> and she talked to them again. And then she called the next Friday and then she talked to him again. And then she I'm not repeating myself. She called every Friday for nine months. And pretty soon she wore them down. I understand what that's like. She wore them down <laughs> and they said, you're not going to give up, are you? No, because we're standing on this precipice of despair and we're screaming with every ounce of who we are and our emotion. What's next? And finally, they gave in, they caved in and they gave us an appointment. And, and we took Courtney to the, the, the specialist, the doctor, and he looked at her and he looked at her fingers and toes and ears. And I don't understand all the dynamics she ordered. He ordered some chromosome tests and some blood tests. And I mean, she went through the gamut, found out that he ended up kind of designating her as PDD, pervasive developmental disorder. She has multiple syndromes. And MR and schizophrenia and I mean, just just tons of stuff. And when he came back and he gave us this prognosis about our little girl, 
Folks, it, it was like this weight that was lifted off of her shoulders. I mean, we didn't know, but now we know. It's like a man that had a, a prison sentence for life and he was relieved of his prison sentence. I mean, we were relieved. I mean, it was huge. And, and what a great message. I mean, what, what a positive thing to experience that, that this burden was lifted off of our shoulders. And now we knew what was wrong with our daughter. But like I said to the little baby, the family holding the little baby in the last service, I said, Our babies do not come with an instruction book. (laughs) And that is true for our daughter. And so, though we were so relieved, and this was really big when we found out what was wrong with Courtney, but then we stood there at the precipice still, and we asked again, what's next? (laughs) What's next now? I mean, now that we know, what's next? And I can't help but imagine that those in, in, in this time and age where Nehemiah is addressing the crowd that, that they had finished the wall and, and it had been constructed. I mean, it was great. It was positive. But I can imagine in their minds they're thinking, OK, now the wall is done. But what's next? You see, for Nehemiah, he knew what was next. And in fact, as we look at the, the scripture or look at Nehemiah and we look at the chapters that are, are coming there after chapter six, and we're going to kind of walk through them quickly this morning. But Nehemiah knew exactly what was next because what he was trying to do is trying to build back the spiritual and the moral foundation that there once was in God's people. And that's interesting. And in fact, it looks like it reads like a, a build a church recipe. In fact, we go to chapter six. Follow me now. We're going to look at the, the scripture. Go to Nehemiah chapter six. And, and we see that there's still opposition. Even the wall has been completed and they, they've done the task. They've built the wall, right? He's come back to Jerusalem. He's built the wall. But there's still this opposition. There are still people opposing them, even though they're doing something that's kind of a good thing. And, and I cannot help but see that there is a parallel here. Even as we do things that are good and even as we get things in order and even as we function as a church, as mission churches, the Nazarene, that there is opposition and there's still resistance. And there's people, baby, that's wanting to work against what it is that God is trying to do. And we see that parallel here in history. And then in chapter seven, go to chapter seven. They count the exiles who had returned from Nebuchadnezzar's captivity, which had ended about 75 years previously. And now, of course, he's calling back the remnant. And in fact, the scripture numbers the remnant, the number of the whole company of peoples was 42,360, not counting the 7,337 male and female servants. And likely uh, many of the male and female servants, of course, were from other places, other countries. And then, of course, 245 singers. So it's interesting. They, they kept a record of all this. And we see that there in chapter seven. And then we jump to chapter eight. Go with me. Go to chapter eight. And then in chapter eight, Ezra reads the law of Moses, you know, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And he reads the law there from sun up until noon. So what is that? That's five hours, maybe six hours that they're reading the law. They're reading the scriptures. So they're gathering in the open court. It says they're gathering in the court is around verse five and six. And then it says uh, it says that Ezra is standing on a raised platform. That's interesting. You know, a raised platform, Ezra standing on the raised platform, and he praised the Lord, the great God. And the people, listen to this, the scripture says this, the people listened. (laughs) 
So they're reading the scripture. The people listened as the scripture is being read. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And then the people, what was their response? The people lifted their hands and they responded. And how did they respond? As Ezra's reading the word, they respond by saying, Amen, 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 Amen. And I, I love reading that because then it says they bow down and they worship. And then there are those, the, the Levitical priests, then there were those, those priests that began to describe the meaning of what was being read. They're talking about, well, this is what the scripture means. So it's interesting because what's happening is they're preaching. So now they're worshiping the Lord. They're bowing down. Amen. 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 Someone's explaining the word. So preaching is happening. This is the very first movement. And folks, if this is a build a church recipe, the first thing in the recipe is hallelujah. They were having church. (laughs) Amen. Man, I love it when we have church. I love it when we gather together. And Sunday morning, it's my favorite time of the week because we're having church. I think too often churches, they gather together and they have meetings and, and they're, 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 you know, they're going through the routine, but we're not really having church. We're not really praising God and we're, we're holding back rather than really worshiping God and thanking God for all that he's done for us. Amen. And so then they go back to Reading the law, there's more scripture involved here. They're, they're reading the law. And then Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, it's interesting. They're now organized. It's, it's formally now a city because there's a wall built around the city. And so they're getting a little bit more, more formal, organized. And now they're using their titles like Pastor Tony. So we read Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest. And then they establish it. They say, this day is holy to the Lord. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, but rejoice for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I I love that phrase because as we're moving, as we are, you know, being the church, we just said that we are being the church and we're active as being the church. We find that there is joy in the Lord and that joy is our strength and joy is not just happiness and joy is not just having fun. You can have joy and have fun. And you can be happy and have joy. But you see, you can have joy when you're not having fun. You can have joy when there's no happiness present. Because the joy comes from the value that you find and discover in knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You see, the joy is deep, it's everlasting, and the enemy cannot take away because the joy is that God loves you and God values you. He really does. He loves you. That's the joy that we have. And it's that joy that becomes our strength. And then the Levites further instruct, listen, they instruct, be still, for this is a holy day. So basically... They are released to think about things for about eight days. If you're reading through the rest of chapter eight, they're thinking about it for about eight days and they've been worshiping. They've been praising. Amen. 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 They've been bowing down as there's been reading the scripture. He's on the platform. He's reading the scripture from morning until noon. And so they're absorbing the word of God. And then in chapter nine, he comes back. They all come back and they come back covered in sackcloth and ashes. And remember what's happening here. He is reestablishing the community of God and part of the act and part of the, the process of establishing the community of God. Once they are worshiping God and they're praising God and they're bowing down to God, then they come back covered in sack, sackcloth and ashes. 
Because they are repenting of their sin. They are repenting of their sin. If this is a build a church recipe and he's establishing the community of God and it is having church that's part of being the community of God, that we are worshiping God, that we gather to worship God, then the next step in build a church recipe is that we repent of our sin. And I know that's not popular to talk about. I understand that. But man, if there's one thing that gets between us and our Lord and our God in heaven that loves us, it's it's this unwillingness to say, Lord, please forgive me. Amen. You see, for Nehemiah, by building walls, the Israelites broke down walls and barriers. Did you catch that? By building wall, you see, they built the wall. By building the wall, they broke down barriers That were preventing them to be and rise up to be all that God had called them to be. Because you see, some of the walls that we have in life are emotional walls. Some of the walls that we have in life are psychological walls. And it's those emotional walls, those psychological walls that the enemy uses to get, get between us and our faith that we have in God. So by building those walls, the Israelites, by building those walls, the barrier having no faith or having no divinely driven purpose... Or the barrier of confronting the oppressors began to be broken down because they were building up this wall that represented God. And maybe in the process of building up this this holy and this godly wall that God has called us to, there is the process of confronting our oppressors or confronting those who oppress us or maybe confronting that sin that is tempting us. And so what happens here, they come in sackcloth and ashes, and in the process of of this rebuilding and establishing a community of God, they repent of their sin. And and I'm not sure if, you know, the Lord is speaking to you about anything, but I sure want to be open to what the Lord is saying to me. In a very similar kind of way, we have barriers that prevent us from rising up to God and being willing to be everything that God has called us to be. There, there, there are things that prevent us from really rising up and, and maybe sharing our faith with others when, you know, God has called us to do that very thing. I mean, you know, God's plan, again, was to reestablish them as a community of God. In the same similar way, we have barriers that prevent us from rising up and, and being the community that God has called us to be. I mean, days are gone, like when the monastic lifestyle and monasteries believe that holiness, you know, was separatism. We are not separatists. We do not believe that being the holy church that God has called us to be, that we are to be separate from the world, but we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be in our society more like a thermostat and less like a thermometer. That means when we go to Starbucks, that like a thermostat, we are affecting the culture around us rather than absorbing and becoming like the culture around us. It means that if we are to be the holiness of God, that we are like the thermostat. When you go to McDonald's and get a hamburger, we are affecting the people around us rather than just being a thermometer and reflecting the people around us. You see, the theme is called unto holiness. That's that's the theme for for our church. I mean, I understand the the. Uh, The mission is to make Christ-like disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission, that we are to make Christ-like disciples of all nations. But we are also called unto holiness. And holiness means that we are called out. That means that we are called out to be in the world, but not of the world. And we do that by being filled and led and directly 
empowered by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. Why do you think Paul writes? Now, bear with me here. Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to to completion in Philippians chapter one, looking at verse three through six. And then with no aggression, but only concern, Paul directly addressed the Galatian church when tempted to turn back to the law rather than embrace the faith of the risen Christ. So what's happening? He's saying, look, why are you turning to the law? You see, because the law is it's more like a list of things that we check off and say, OK, we've done this and we've done this and we've done this. It's less like that and more like the grace of Christ and the grace of God that gives us everlasting life. In fact, he, he talks about it like this. Go to Galatians with me today. Go to Galatians chapter three. Let's turn there together this morning as as God's family. Let's go to Galatians chapter three. And we're going to look at verse one through three there in chapter three of Galatians. And here's. Here's how he addresses it. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Interesting language there that he uses. It's almost like he's befuddled in this scenario. He says, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Watch that beginning by the means of the spirit. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? You see, I guess what I'm trying to say today is what the flesh can do. Listen to this. What the flesh can do, the Holy Spirit can do better. And what the Holy Spirit can do, the flesh cannot do. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit in us, living through us, and be empowered by that Holy Spirit to do the things that the Spirit calls us to do. Why? Because we are a holiness church. Amen. So that's kind of the second movement. Here's the third movement here. For the Israelites, this was a new norm. And and the new norm meant that they were sharing their faith. And you say, well, pastor, I'm reading Nehemiah here. How are they sharing their faith? Well, uh, we see this by by them knowing the law. They're knowing the law. They're learning the law. It's being read morning and read nighttime. And they're getting familiar, becoming familiar with the law. And so they're coming together for that often publicly. So they're knowing the law. That's how they're sharing their faith. And they're making oaths. This means that they're setting boundaries to how they're going to marry and whether they're going to live in the city or outside of the city. And so they're sharing their faith in that way. And that's under the old dispensation of the law. But we now, the church, listen, we are under a new dispensation. It is a dispensation of grace. And sharing our faith today under the new dispensation means that we are telling others about Jesus Christ. Amen. I guess if there's anything that I'd want you to hear this morning, this is it. As we're just trying to pull all of this information together, it is this. What will it take? What will it take to blow through the walls that stand between us and being able to share Jesus Christ? What will it take to blow, you know, and knock down those walls that prevent us from rising up and saying, you need to know Jesus I want you to meet Jesus because Jesus makes all the difference in the world. You say, well, pastor, how how do we do that? Well, I know that it takes determination. I know that it takes passion. I mean, a conviction in our heart to to share Jesus and to be concerned for those that are pre-Christians. Those that have not heard the gospel yet. Those that have not met Jesus. And folks, it's a reality. There are pre-Christians, people that have not met Jesus Christ all around you. How many believe that? 
How many believe that God cares about pre-Christians, those that have not met Jesus Christ? I think we're all kind of nodding or raising our hands. I, I will never forget my story about Brenda. Brenda was the manager of a convenience store at a BP station. We have BP stations back east. Do we have BP stations here? It's a gas station. It stands for British Petroleum. But anyhow, uh, it's a big chain. And she was the manager of the convenience store named Brenda. And I bought my coffee there, same convenience store, every morning on the way to the church. And uh, I got to know Brenda. And that first fall, we had a, a, a friend day, kind of like an open house. And I invited Brenda to, to friend day. I found out that she was not attending church. In fact, um, she was a pre-Christian. She, she was not a believer yet. And, and so um, I invited her to come to church and to reach out, as we're talking about. And, and uh, she said, I'll come. I'll attend. Well, that fall came, the date came and went, and she didn't show up, she didn't attend. Well, anyhow, um, a whole year passed, and she was still working at that convenience store. And Skip, I invited her again for a second time, and she promised me that she would come. And so the date came and went, and she never showed up. The third year, I invited her again. The fourth year, I invited her again. Folks, the fifth year, I invited her again. And after the fifth year, she didn't show up. And after those five years, I guess I just wrote her off. And I wasn't going to ask her anymore. Five years. Well, anyhow, come fall, near that time of the year, she's still at the convenience store. And she says, Pastor, aren't you going to ask me? And it was just kind of went over my head because I just kind of just given up. And she says, aren't you going to ask me? I said, ask you for what? And she says, ask me to come to your church on friend day. She had it memorized now. And, and I go... Well, I wanted to give her some attitude, you know what I'm saying, some flippant remark. But I said, yeah, 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 it's such and such date. Well, guess what? Brenda came on friend day, and she brought her teenage daughter with her. I preached a message on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Brenda and her daughter came to the altar, and they cried like babies. And they asked Jesus to become a part of their life. And they were no longer pre-Christians. They were now Christians. And the next week, she brought two other kids with her, her kids. They got saved. About three months later, we'd prayed for her husband several times at the altar because he was literally an alcoholic. He came, and folks, first time he came, he got saved. He's no longer an alcoholic. Easter of that year, about six months later, Easter of that year, our pews were really long, and you could sit about 20 or 25 people. Guess what? Her family alone and friends occupied an entire pew. And I had given up after five years. I'd given up. But all the things that God does are a mystery to me. You see, the key is the passion, the determination to share Jesus. And by the way, invite him. Invite him to come to church. Pastor Vic, come up here. Pastor Vic shared with me a story of part of his past life. And I said, wow, that's a great story. Just tell us about you and how you share Jesus. You know, we do church so we can be the church. That's what what Pastor Tony's been preaching about this morning. Um, Several years ago, we had an opportunity, my wife and I had an opportunity to help plant a church in South Orange County, not too far from here. And uh, it was a huge step of faith on our part because part of it meant that I had to um, provide for the family um, by getting a secular job. 
And so I ended up uh, getting a job with Cox Communication. I was a cable guy. And, uh, and so every day I would, I would put on my boots and I would head out the door. And I would go to, obviously, different people's homes. This one in particular home I walked into that one day was, uh, there was a, a, a single gal, elderly, beautiful, beautiful home, uh, a gated community in Laguna Nagal. It was a gorgeous house, so it was just brand new, it was built. And uh, so I introduced myself, and she began to lead me to all the rooms in her home where she wanted cable installed. And as she followed me from room to room, she, I would she would hear I would hear her story. And she said, "You know what? We had this house uh, tailor made for my husband and I. And two weeks before we moved into our home, my husband had a heart attack and he died." He said, "For years." For years, we had been planning our retirement and what we would do. For years, we had been planning uh, on this beautiful house. And now this house sits there and I don't even want to live here because he's not here. And so as I was working, she was following me from room to room. She would keep telling me story after story about her life. And at the end, I I heard this little prompting of the Lord. He says, "Uh, I need you to pray for her. And so what I would do is I would do just about almost every time I would walk out of one of these homes, I would ask, can I, can I pray for you? Is there something I can do to pray for you about? And so I asked her, can I pray for you? She said, sure. After I was done praying for her, she looked at me and she says, you know, uh, here I thought I was getting a cable guy. And God sent me a priest. You know, every day we have encounters, various encounters, people at the office, at work, where you shop, where you live. And there are people that you don't even realize who are struggling. But if, uh, but if you, if we would just say a simple prayer like, God, I don't know what you have in mind for me today, but I heard what I heard Sunday. Why we do what we do on Sunday morning so we can be who you are calling us to be on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. God is calling us not just to do church. He calls us to do that so we can be the church. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Coming back and going back to the beginning of my message in my introduction. You know, the question, you remember the question. What's next? Church, amen. What's next? If we're to be the church and we want to go beyond just, you know, doing church, then what's next? What's next for you as God calls you to be the church this morning? Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come and they're going to just lead us in in a course and invite you to stand with me. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray and they're going to lead us in worship. But I'm going to pray that God would just open doors and windows for you, that you'll feel the fresh breath of God's spirit, you know, blowing your way and that you'll be able to respond to him as you say, Lord, I'm willing. As you think about the question, what's next for you? What's next for your family? Let us pray. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for answered prayer. I thank you, God, that you, Lord, give us such great examples in in scripture. 
We can look at your people and their history and learn so very much. But Father in heaven, I pray that you would just anoint us at this moment, this time right now as the church, as, as the congregation, a mission church of the Nazarene, that we would just sense your presence this morning. The excitement of being a part of, Lord, something that you're doing that's bigger than us, bigger than anything we can imagine or dream ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that you just speak to that family this morning. I pray that you'd go to that man or that woman right now that is asking the question, Lord, what, what should I do next? You'd help them answer the question. Maybe it does have to do with life or a decision they have to make or maybe education. Lord, whatever it is, Father, I just pray that you would guide them and direct them and help them find the answer to their questions. But, Father, as a church, Lord, as individual Christians, may we ask that question also in a spiritual sense. That when we ask what's next, that, Lord, our heart and our eyes be open to see what you're doing around us. And that we would see somebody that maybe they don't know Jesus yet. They've not made a decision to, to spend their time reading the Bible, getting to know you. They're pre-Christian. And so, Father, I pray for those that we know, those that we encounter, that are yet going to meet Jesus. Because maybe possibly we're being Jesus to them and with them and for them. Because I know that you love them. With our heads bowed and eyes closed and nobody looking around. Just between you and the Lord right now. Maybe the Lord has put somebody on your mind. Maybe there's somebody that you've been praying for. And you're saying, Father, I need your strength. I need your direction. Lord, help me be Jesus to that person. Help me, Lord, be that something to someone that would impact their lives. And give me a chance to, Lord, reach out to them. Just pray that way right now. Your heads bowed and eyes closed. Just between you and the Lord. You're saying, Lord... Help me be able to reach out to them this morning or maybe this week. Help me to be Jesus. Lord, help me to be reminded of the mission that you've called us to. Father, help. may we not forget that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for hearing that prayer right now. We worship you. We praise your holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.